Today is, of course, January 17, 2018, lecture discussion number six on the book of Joel. Uh, before we get to doing that, let me a couple of quick things. We got a, a card from John from Pennsylvania, and John says this to you folks so that you know. Cliffside family, thank you for supporting. Pastor Stephen, you are very blessed and a blessing. John, and he supplied most of the... Uh, uh, most of the desserts for today's buffet. So, in case you were wondering where that was coming, and thank you, John. He's been a terrific uh, supporter uh, of us for quite some time now. Also, Paula White. Anybody see Paula White this week? Do you know who Paula White is? It's good to know because um, she has some proximity to the uh, current presidential administration. Uh, she is a religious figure. I would say to you that uh, she is as doctrinally unsound as you possibly can locate. Uh, and that is not unusual, but she's at the bottom of the doctrinal ladder, if you will. She asked this. She said, um, uh, she told her congregation, which is very large, very wealthy, and, and uh, they are monetized, to say the least. She asked them, or didn't ask them, she um, pretty much ordered them to donate their January salaries Oops. as a first fruits offering. Now, that's really interesting to me immediately. One, it's a complete misappropriation of the feast day of first fruits. She has no idea what she's talking about, and it doesn't surprise me. Two, she wants them to donate their salary, their monthly January salary offering, or God will give them consequences. Now that, again, I wish it wasn't uncommon, but it is, it is uh, destructive. It is, oh my goodness, it is heretical. It's awful. Yet it works. People respond. They are fearful. So I have a heretic who has great authority over her congregation, able to manipulate them into making her rich. I would say that that describes a good, oh my goodness, should I say 100% of all televangelism that I see today? No, I'm sure there are exceptions. But it's high percentage. These people are doing this for money, and it's making them extremely wealthy. Look up someday, Google whatever, whatever it is. You can look at the mansions of these people. And just for fun, look up my mansion. Just for a, for a laugh and go, how come they're not bulldozing it? Because I fought them off for a couple of more weeks. Anyway, I'll bring her up here in a minute. It's 2018, and that hardly seems possible, but here we are, and nonetheless, we find ourselves in 2018. When we were here last assembled, it was lecture number five, and it was 2017. That was a year ago. Isn't that amazing how fast it went? I was much younger looking. You can check MeTube for verification. 
I've been fascinated by the aging process. I have been, I have to say. My father told me a long time ago, as he was nearing the end of his life, he said to me, you're a very smart guy. You might be smarter than me, but I'm dying before you. And you won't understand the wisdom that I have that you don't have. And I had an instinct that he was right, but now that I am at the age that I am, I'm fascinated by this process. It's quite the revelation, this difference between my mind, or the mind, and the mirror. What my mind thinks and what the photograph says are not even close. And that fascinates me. How have I managed to completely uh, deny the, the reality of it? But I have. And I do it consistently. My mind never goes to the photograph when I think of myself or the mirror. I know it's me, but my mind has a completely different uh, thought process, uh, I guess. So uh, what I'm saying is, is that what my mind is thinking and what the reality is or what the mirror is, that's two states. I have a mental state and then there is the physical state and I've yet to be able to consistently reconcile the two. And the disparity between the two, two states is increasing exponentially. It is amazing how fast I change now. And I find the experience, as I said, to be interesting and I know that it is related to where in the Bible. I know that it is a Genesis 3 experience that I have. That we all have. None of us escape this. And it's a consequence of Genesis 3, which makes it all the more intriguing. The contemplation or the meditation over what happened at Genesis 3, in my view, is of primary importance. It's essential to your understanding of Scripture. And you might remember, I did it on what we would have called our Christmas uh, candlelight service. We have been entangled in the possibilities of Schrodinger's paradox. And for those of you who upon occasion listen carefully to me, both of you today, the use of entanglement was not an accident. We are entangled in Schrodinger. And I think absolutely appropriately to use that phrase. That is a phrase of physics, particle entanglement. And I'll explain why particle entanglement and Schrodinger's cat are interlaced a bit later in the lecture, maybe. Though for some of you, you and you know who you are, the reasons are obvious that Schrodinger and entanglement are joined. Uh, but before we uh, get into that, before we progress, before we might progress, let's, uh, it's probably best to retreat, retreat. So let me do that. If you weren't here, I've been bringing up Schrodinger now for quite a while, actually months. Schrodinger. Hope I spelled him right, did I? Yep. He essentially came up with this concept, a list, if you will. He had a box, and he put a cat in the box, and then he put in cyanide, or a poison, if you will. In this case, it was a cyanide gas that was inside of a glass capsule. Um, 
And then there, um, there was a radiation or a radioactive <coughs> component and a detection system, a Geiger counter. A Geiger counter that, that detected the radioactivity. When the radioactivity occurred, then there was a mechanism or a mechanical device that activated a hammer. And that, of course, killed the cat. So, but there, until that happened, we had a period of time, a time period, where the cat was in a two-state or a superposed state where it was both alive and dead that was eventually reconciled by an intelligent agency Ah, agent, agency. Did I forget the T? Okay. And that, that of course, has an observation element to it. I'll put this down even though the two observation, even though the two are, in fact, intrinsic. Let's see, did I leave anything out? I don't, oh, did I, I put the hammer down. I have the time period. Radioactivity particle, all of that stuff. So there it is. That is his. That is his paradox. I guess I could write paradox up there. And what he was trying to do was to defeat um, Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, ultimately Goodell, those who had an interdeterminacy position. He's trying to say this is absurd. The cat can't be both alive and dead simultaneously. But ultimately, it launched a huge debate. And that's where we have been. The argument rages on, I think. But mostly, it has been decided um, on the side of Niels Bohr and the Copenhagen interpretation. If you weren't here for that, eventually, I will get it all back to where you can find it. But that's the list for today. Okay. Everything seems to return to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Very important concept. Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Everything seems to return there. By everything, I mean most things. For example, Jesus Christ is the last Adam. He's the second Adam. So where's the first Adam? Genesis 2, Genesis 3. When he identifies himself as the last Adam, you go back to Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And he refers, Jesus Christ does, he refers to his mother Mary in your bulletin, standing next to Eve. Mary returns to Genesis 2, Genesis 3. The second Adam refers to his mother Mary as what? Do you remember? He does it a couple of times. Woman. That's not an accident. He's the omniscient God of creation. It's one of his seven sayings from the cross, John 19, 25 through 26. It's the third of Christ's seven sayings. He refers to his mother as woman. God in the flesh also calls Mary woman, Christ does, at his public ministry beginning. The genesis of his public ministry, 
At John 2, the water into wine, he calls her woman. Not an accident. The first Adam, Genesis 2.23, remember, Jesus Christ is the infinite, omniscient creator God in the flesh. The first Adam, Genesis 2.23, names the first woman, woman. I know you pay a lot of money for stuff like this, don't you? That's really, really profound. It might seem like I'm... Did you see the 104-year-old lady? Fantastic. My favorite lady. You can look her up. 104. She said she didn't think she was somebody smiling because they know where I'm headed. She's 100 years old. She thought, I'm not going to make it to 101. But she has. She's made it to 104. And you know what she, her attribution? Do you know what she attributes to her advanced age? And her cognitive Functionality. She's very impressive. What What is making her so smart and so old simultaneously? That's right. Every day she drinks Diet Coke. Every day. Look it up. It's scientific proof. Can't be an anomaly or apocryphal. It's got to be <laughs> definitive. <clears throat> so there you go, all you naysayers. <clears throat> That aspartame and aluminum poisoning is the way to go. <clears throat> We're going to find out that it's the aluminum that, that gives me my hair color at some point. I hope so. How can I compete with a 104-year-old woman that has been drinking it for 40 or 50 years, whatever it is? Yeah, that's just so great. Where am I? I'm a professional. Please find my place. The first Adam names the first woman, woman. Christ calls Mary, woman. He's the second Adam. Obviously, Christ's use of the term woman sends us back to Genesis 2.23. As will every place he says woman to somebody, he's sending you back to Genesis where Adam calls the first woman, woman. Woman at the well, all of the women. I don't know if you remember me starting that process, uh, and I knew it was coming because I knew where I was going, even though I knew also it would take me a long time to get here. But we will begin to get these places where Christ says woman and start to put them back where they belong, which is Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's clearly... Um, 2.23 of Genesis, but it's also maybe less transparent. It refers to Genesis 3.15, where Christ also speaks of the woman, the seed of the woman. So Christ is the presiding judge, as you know, if you've been here for a while, at the trial of Adam, the trial of the woman, and the trial of the serpent. And he establishes there the seed of the woman prophecy. That's where it is. And now whenever you find him referring to Mary in some cases, the woman at the well, any woman that he addresses as woman, then you immediately should rush back to Genesis 3.15 as well as Genesis 2.23 and see what is connecting them. He is, in fact, the seed of the woman, the very prophecy that he gives as he presents uh, the sentencing uh, to Satan, he is that very seed. And I'm sure that Satan had figured that out at some point, if not immediately. 
So as he's establishing the seed of the woman, he is the seed of the woman simultaneously. You will find this is something that Christ does many times because he's God. It gives him an advantage. It's advantageous to be God. So he is able to be what he says. In other words, let me put it this way. He is giving you the parable of the sower, as you know giving the parable of the sower, at the same time he is the sower sowing. When he gives the prophecy of the seed of the woman, he is the seed of the woman. Find another person who has ever accomplished things like that. It it requires the ability to do something and to be something. So... Clearly, each time Jesus God uses the word woman, it must connect to Adam and it must connect also to Genesis 3.15. Now, alongside of that would be the unmistakable. That's why we put it in the bulletin, because as highly skilled professionals who communicate every Sunday are not, uh, we wanted you to see this picture. This, there's this unmistakable joining of Eve and Mary and something, as I said, the artists over generations have, have addressed many, many times. Christ, being the second Adam, carries with it the assignment of Mary being in the Eve position just automatically. Mary is the one who is the woman who gives birth to the seed of the woman. So clearly that puts her into an Eve position. Mary bore the literal seed of the woman. Eve is the mother of all the living. There's a nuanced difference there. Let me repeat it. Mary is the one who bore the seed of the woman. She literally did that. Eve is the mother of all the living. That's her title. I see some more food has come in. What do we have today, sir? Smoked chicken. Today is clearly chicken day. You were all wise not to tell anybody what we were doing today. Let me put it a different way. Mary is the mother of the living one. The one who is living, the one who is life itself, the one who gives life. He is the one from which life comes from. He is the first life, if you want to think of it that way. Little notation here. Do not, or do actually probably better, do resist the common inclination in the church today to apply human definitions of living and life. If you can exorcise, if you can expunge human definitions of living and life from your vocabulary or from your thought process, you will be far ahead as you read the Bible. We can't stop ourselves. We always make the mistake of putting our definitions of life or death into the Bible when we read it. That's an error. Try not to do it. Try to always have God's definitions. If the text is the human definition, it will leap off the page for you. If not, you will be advanced in your understanding of what the text is actually saying. You see, when Adam renamed the first woman, he renamed her the mother. He took, he called her woman. 
So it's important to notice that Christ, when he calls Mary woman, is going back to the first name of the woman. The first name of the woman is woman. Again, this is profound stuff there. It's hard for me to say it without trying to, with, uh, suppressing the laughter. But that's what he did. And when Christ says it, he means for us to go back there and look at that. Why did Adam call her woman? What does that mean? The Bible tells you what it means. But when he renamed her, he changed the name from the original meaning, her original uh, title, if you will. He changed her title to the mother of all the living, which is extraordinary. And he would not have made the error of misdefining living in life. He would have known when he said she's the mother of the living, he meant the mother of living as God defines living. The de- he would have God's definition of living in that title. He would mean that definition. And... And if you have God's definition of living by default, you have it necessitates that you have God's definition of death. Once you establish what he means by living, then you will have established what he means by death or dead. Once you can define life, death is actually quite simple. It's non-life. So figure out what God means by life. And now you know that death is not that. As an aside, if Satan is the father of lies, and he is so declared to be, he is the father of lies. The meaning of that phrase is that Satan was what? He was the first one to lie. So it has a sequential or chronological element to it. Thus the obvious questions now emerge about the woman. As you've heard me ask before, why isn't the woman renamed the mother of all the dead? She's not. The woman is the mother of sin. She is the first to sin. Sin and death are interchangeable. She is the first human being to sin, 1 Timothy 2.14. Sin and death, inseparable. So why is she not renamed by Adam the mother of death or the mother of sin? Why not that for a name? Because that would be applicable. Why isn't she the mother of death, the mother of sin, the mother of all who would die? It would seem logical. But there's your first clue. It's not logical. Would Adam have thought any of this? Would he have reasoned his way through it? He makes a decision to name her the mother of all living because he knows that's the right name for her now. Why is that the right name for the woman? Of all the names you could have changed, why not Betty? But it isn't. It's the mother of all living. It's Eve. When she's dead. Or is she dead? She's dying. Or is she dying? How do you define death and dying? How does God define it? Adam would have God's definition, wouldn't he? And he would know the difference between the definitions, what God would define as death and what God would define as living, and he names her the first of all the living. It's not 
logical for her to be the first of all who are dead. Who's that? When you're talking about physical human beings. Adam is the father of death. The father of all the dead. The first of the dead. Romans 5. Adam is that. Not the woman. She is the first of all the living. So I have them juxtapositioned. One is the first of the dead. The other is the first of the living. Satan is the first of the lying. The first of the murderers. And don't worry, I'm not going to descend into the continuity of germ cell plasm. Germ cells and somatic cells. I know that you were thinking, okay, that's what he's going to do. Eighth grade biology, one more time. I'm not. I want to really bad, but I'll resist. But you do know that in order to solve the virgin birth, the, the mistake that is made in Catholicism between Mary and Eve is they could not figure out how it would be that a sinful being could bear infinite sinless God. And if they understood how God designed women, they would know that. So they created this illusion that, uh, that Mary was uh, a perfect person, which, of course, she obviously was not, and Christ identified it immediately when he called her woman. I just... <coughs> I just recognize the need to reemphasize the unusual aspect of the renaming of the woman and, and putting it aside, uh, the father of the dead. The father of the dead names her the mother of the living, and that is very important. Note that one of them is dead and one of them is living. Isn't that interesting? Where am I now? Where did I just go? That's right, Schrodinger's box. And I have, for quite some time over my so-called career, realized that Adam and Eve are in the box. By that I mean Schrodinger's paradox is first demonstrated in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I doubt that he knew that. I've often wondered if he did. But it is obvious to me that it, it exists at Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Erwin Schrodinger, obviously a, a genius, how much theological understanding did he have? But it's fascinating what he proposed. It's obvious to me when I look at his list that he is in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Let's just go over that a second. Schrodinger proposed a poison that if activated would kill the cat. Genesis 2 has a what? I'll make a, I'll go over here and make the list for you. Genesis 2 have a poison? Oh, it sure does. You can probably start going without me now. Genesis 2 has a poison. If eaten, it's going to kill the man or the woman or both. In Schrodinger's concept, the cat is helpless. That's a key distinction. The poisoning occurs in Schrodinger's paradox by a radioactive time process. Did I have time on there? I do not. Wow. Number eight? Oh, good. That's critical. 
Do I have a time process over here? Genesis 2 and 3? Do I have cats? I do, don't I? Cats are living beings. Nefesh. Living souls. I have living souls in both places. In one case, I have living soul, but over here, I have living souls. Anytime you see two states, begin to say, where is two states going to send me theologically? They'll send you back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So let's back to Schrodinger. He has this, his concept is the cat, cat is helpless. The poisoning occurs by a radiation process over a period of time. There's a mechanical apparatus in there. Uh, though an intelligent agency must design and construct the box. He has an intelligent agency constructing the box. He's wise enough to know you just don't get a box from some natural process. I have to have intellect to get that box built and designed. And then that intelligent agency has to install the poison. The poison has to be put in the box in a capsule. And the radiation and the glass capsule, the detection system, the mechanism that breaks the the glass and places, uh, the intelligent agency has to do all of that and actually put the cat inside the garden. The intelligent agency has, oh, excuse me, I mean box. There's a placement here. How did the cat get in the box? You think the cat said, oh, look, a box filled with cyanide. I think I'll go in there. Oh, it's got radiation. Cool. I like it here. The cat has to be placed in the box in Schrodinger's concept. As soon as I see something placed into an environment where there is a poison, I'm immediately at Genesis 3. And so it makes me wonder, how good a theologian was Erwin Schrodinger? What, what's that? Is it? Made outside the garden. Oh yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Bill the fast in the front row is, is, is said that Adam, of course, made outside the garden and placed inside the garden. That detail is incredibly important, as you know. Notice I did not say, but I thought it again. No, I'm penalized for thinking it now. I can't watch these people on TV. I count it. Have I got you doing that? Because that's part of my maniacal thought process is to make you uh, count it when you can. Anyway, where am I? Anyway, okay, so. Genesis 2. At Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, first, two that are made living are placed inside the box, garden. A death instrument is revealed. Ask why. Why is a death instrument necessary, essential? Because it is, it is necessary that there be a death instrument. Why is that? What's the point of it? Omniscience makes it so. It's critical that that death instrument be there because he's omniscient God. 
What makes it so? I'm going to tell you what makes it so is his definition of living, which Adam would have understood, and his definition of death, which Adam would understand. And don't disregard the fall of the angelic realm. That's your timeline assignment, as you know. Figure out where the timeline is. I'm reading Larkin um, uh, yesterday, I believe. Again, I'm looking at some of his diagrams just to see if he had anything that I'm omitting. And uh, he really put a lot of energy in trying, because he did all these beautiful timeline diagrams, Clarence Larkin did. That's how he thought. That's his processes. uh, That's inherent in him. And he recognized, wow, I have a, I have to deal with this time. How long were they in the garden? Who, how much time between Adam and the creation of Eve? Uh, how did this all work? And so he, he wrestled with that. I found that to be uh, very enlightening. Okay. Do I have a time period that elapses? How much time elapsed in the garden is very important. Who decides how much time? Who decided when Eve was going to be made and how much time between her and Adam? Who decided when is Adam placed in the garden? Is there ever a period of time where he's not in the garden? Was it immediately? I make him, I move him. Or was he allowed to look at the garden while he is outside of the garden and then put in the garden? How much time elapsed? Did he know why he was in the garden as opposed to not being in the garden? Is there any difference between the garden and the non-garden? Now, some you will hear is where Hugh Ross uh, lurches into destructive nonsense. What's called the pre-Adamide or Adamoid position. Uh, it has no validity. Discard it. Well, you can please investigate it. And then once you do, you'll discard it. But there is no death. There is no death anywhere. Adam is the first Death. So there's no animal death. There's no death. So how is it? How, what is the difference between the garden and the non-garden? So this period of time elapses. In that period of time, the woman does not believe God. Is disease is deceived by a created being that's also in the box. Satan is also in the garden. I have three in the garden. This created being that's in the box physically transferred her to the poison and she dies. So I have a mechanism, don't I? That mechanism is Satan. Is he a mechanical device? He causes the poison to be distributed. I have a mechanical device causes the poison to be distributed. He's also a spiritual device, isn't he? Though her death, when she dies, is not immediately apparent. We would see her eat the poison and not see a physical manifestation. But she knew she was dead immediately. So she understood the definition of death, didn't she? Knowing God's definition of death, again, is a basic requirement of understanding 
his word, understanding scripture. Anyway, now there are, I got one living and one dead and one in a state of abeyance or suspension. So of the three in the box, in the garden, who's the dead one? How many vote for Eve? That would be a misrepresentation. She's still the woman at this point. When does she stop being the woman and become Eve? What made her the woman and turned her into? Was Adam actually telling her something that was going to happen or something that had already happened? You are the, he identifies her as the mother of the living. Did they both know it already? In other words, does the name follow the, uh, what do I want? The condition. I think that's very clear. So who's the dead one? None of you raised your hand. Let the record show for the Internet. Not one single person thought Eve was the dead one here. What do I say? Okay, 14 are asleep. So that doesn't count. Do the math. (laughs) So who is dead? If it's not the woman, is it the man? No, he hasn't taken the poison yet. Who's the dead one, as God defines dead? One is living, one is dead, and one is in a state of suspension. Someone is dead and waiting to have their death verified at trial. Again, the serpent, the mechanical implement that facilitates the conveyance of the poison to the woman, he is the dead one. Does he know it? Does this make him dead, what he's done? Remember, God says to him, because you have done this thing, you're dead. When was the lake of fire created? Before the mechanical device conveyed the poison in the garden? Or after? There's your timeline again. The man is living. The woman is not living, but also is not dead. What is she? Now, some will object, uh, the, the protestants. They will protest that God, being outside of time and therefore omniscience, omniscient, which is true, the, he is the absolute omniscient observer, and that he has observed the woman outside of time, and therefore she is living. But he is also the observer of time at all time, which means he observes her at all times, simultaneously. He sees her completely. But anyway, they will say, no, that's not a factor. What God observes is causation. What God observes is reality. But you have to be careful you don't put him inside of time. Let's ask a few questions. Is omniscience, is his omniscience causation? Let me put it a different way. The fact that he knows everything, does that cause anything or all things? Uh, Is the state of identifying something the cause of the state? In other words, if I identify, if I open the box and I identify the cat is alive, does my identification make the cat alive? Schrodinger saw the observing of the cat as central. It's the observer, the effect. Is it recording what has occurred or is it affecting what has occurred? 
Got all that? I hope you do. In any event, time is a requirement for a superposition or a superposed state. <sighs> a lot of stuff to, to digest. I got that. You should see me when I'm writing it going, what am I doing? I should have saved this for Ishtar instead of Christmas. Anyway, the man leaves his box, joins himself to the bride, and now both are together in another box to which they are driven. So they are placed in the garden, and then they are placed in another, uh, uh, if you will, garden, another non-garden, I guess in this case, physical uh, location. And access to the garden, the first box, which contains the tree of life, is withdrawn from them. And my goal for this week is to place before you, for your consideration, the similarity of, or similarities of Genesis 2 and 3 and Erwin Schrodinger's paradox. Again, all things seem to return to Genesis 3. How can this be like this? How does this happen? How does Erwin Schrodinger replicate Genesis 3? Did he know it? Genesis 2 and 3. Why is it so? Okay, moving along, sort of. Sort of because I'm pretending to move along while actually we're not moving. The best description would be the flailing of my uh, arms and legs giving the illusion of motion, but we're remaining in the same exact spot. That's a warning. But I'm pretending to move because I want you to see if I really am. What's the point, you ask? Why the imposition of a conception having no objective reality? And within that question is the purpose. I couldn't help but notice that someone wrote on one of our YouTube thingies. He identified himself or self-identified as desert file. I guess it means he likes deserts, which he can't be from Alaska he has to be from Arizona. Who would live in Arizona? It's crazy. But he placed the question on one of the cliffside face tube videos. And the question, I think it's fairly recent. The question essentially was, why didn't, why hasn't, why doesn't the God of creation come to earth and physically rule his universe? That was his question. I, I see you there. You're not surrendering, I know. She's got her hands up in the air, but she's really... Yeah, not coming to get you again, are they? No. Anyway, what he actually was saying, that's not what he said. He didn't say, why didn't, hasn't God, uh, doesn't God of creation come to earth and physically rule his universe? That's what he meant, but he might not have known it. Actually, what he said was this, why are your gods hiding from us? That's what he said. That's pretty common. Why are your gods, because he's attacking, um, not attacking, but he's questioning, he's looking at um, my uh, lectures and deciding that I am a polytheistic person, I guess, because I have a trinity or triune God view. And as is often the case, I suspect the desert file considers what he asked, uh, the aforementioned, to be unanswerable. And as you instinctively recognized, his format reflects a disrespect. However, to be fair, Desert File did uh, careen into a subject of great worth, though I doubt the awareness of the totality of the subject is present. I think he just threw something out that he thinks, again, is uh, impossible for Christians to 
effectively resist. And the question that he presented, he did so in an incognizant fashion, so his self-awareness is probably diminished. And so I thought, perhaps I can be helpful. So I'll try. Is Christ God hiding from us? Yes or no? If this is so, if he is hiding, let's just carry it to the... Uh, if he is hiding, who is he hiding from? Why is he hiding from those that he is hiding from? And now can you see how this is the same subject where we were? I hope you can. Where does hiding come up in the Bible? Have you returned to where hiding is first mentioned in Scripture? Where is it? Genesis 3, everything goes back to Genesis 3. Are there those to whom he is not hiding? If he is hiding, do I have two classifications? Do I have two states? Do I have the ones he's hiding from and the ones he's not hiding from? Which one are you? Where are you? You're not in the garden. You're in the other place that's not the garden. Aren't you? Aren't we all? What's the difference between here and the garden? Why are there? Why is there a difference? Now, of course, that's antediluvian versus post-diluvian, pre-flood versus post-flood. How shall we categorize those to whom he is hiding from? By what process does one move from a hidden from state to a revealed to state? How do I change from one to the other? How much time is involved? Is there poison? Am I poisoned? How do I become unpoisoned? Where's the solution to the poison? How do I get out of the poison state to the unpoisoned state? I should insert some clarity, maybe. Jesus Christ is the I am. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's the everlasting Father. That's his name. He's mighty God. He's the ancient of days, the creator of all things. He absolutely hides. He does. I can prove it. I won't read it today because I got two hands up in the air. He has indeed hid himself. Who did he, who does he hide himself from? Uh, we're going to, we'll go next week to Numbers 4, 5 through 13. Every time the ark is moved, it had to be covered. The ark is a picture of Christ. It portrays Christ. No one could look upon the ark. It had to be covered in, some will say badger's skin, but I think it's more likely that it's porpoise or dolphin skin. Whenever the ark started to move, the, the priests had this tremendous amount of of structure that they had to adhere to to get the ark in a position where no one could see it. And then they moved it. The veil, the blue cloth, you'll see blue and purple and scarlet again. No one can look upon it. Desert file might have, might have appropriately asked this though. Is God hiding from me? He should have said, or her, maybe her. Internalized it. And if so, why is God hiding from me? 
That's a solemn question indeed. Now let's back up again a bit. Obviously, Christ has not always hid himself. Genesis 1 through 3 is the prime example. Christ walks in his garden. Adam has unfettered access. Christ convenes a trial as the judge. He presides over the trial. Those are two of the most unequivocal examples of God, Christ not hiding himself. And those two are especially important to note. Christ was not only revealed to be who he is, he was evident, but he was personally, directly interactive. No one who was there had any doubt as to who Christ is or was. Was isn't applicable to Christ, he's outside of time. Was is a human perspective or an angelic perspective. This was the creator or this is the creator of all things and everyone knew it. Adam and the woman were in his presence. And they were unafraid. They were not ashamed. There was no barrier. There was no veil was between God and mankind. Reciprocal observation was intact. By that I mean they could see God while God is also seeing humanity. That's no longer the case. As we are today inside of time. And so the most obvious of the obvious questions is, when did all of that change? And you know, when did God begin to hide himself from man's sight? What was the cause, the occurrence, the resultant is that God does not commune with man in the sense that he did in the garden. What is the cause of this condition? What cause is traceable to this condition? And what has always fascinated me is the insistence of the atheists that God reveal himself to them, that God prove his existence to them. That's what they want. And my initial response is to offer the inverse. Why don't you, why don't you, atheistic, monistic, evolutionary people, why don't you prove your existence? Of course, they don't think they exist. Isn't that interesting? Why don't you reveal yourself to God, I ask them. Who are we that God must bow before us, that God must perform for us? Where is God's obligation to succumb to the demands of mankind? And I, and I thought, and, and though I consider those to be valid points, they do lead us away from the central concern. Jesus Christ is typified by the veil, the skins covering the Ark of the Testimony, walk through his creation with this cloak over him of humanity. And no one in Israel, very few, knew him. John says specifically, they did not recognize that this was God. So he walks through his creation cloaked, his garden cloaked now, unseen. Now there is an exception, if you will, of his 33 years of his first coming. And there's Melchizedek. But even those that were shrouded, he was shrouded when he was here. Many did not know it was God. Hardly, and his own disciples didn't know it was God. Until he opened up and showed them that it's me, I'm the Shekinah glory, I'm the light of life. His revelation, his revealing, his second coming, his second advent, that's still a future event. So what is his motive for doing what he's doing? When did it begin? We know when it began. It began in Genesis 3, 20 through through 24. Immediately subsequent to the clothing of Adam and Eve, the tunics of skin, the blood coverings after the trial. That's when it began. That's when he began to hide himself. If you wish to think of it that way, we'll continue that discussion in the future. When does it end? 
When does he stop doing this? We know that as well. Christ openly seats himself on his throne. So I have God himself in his temple in Jerusalem for all to see. If you're in the millennium, now won't that be a glorious thing? Uh, you can go and see him and hear him both. After the trial of the nations, after he separates the goats from the sheep, the dead cats from the live cat, pattern repeats. After the judge of all things, well, judges all things, or at least for, for that particular period, after he, after he ends the tribulation, he judges the things, and you and me, and, and we're all things, we're created things. That's when now he can be seen again as it was. But not quite. The millennium isn't quite without sin. In fact, there's plenty of sin. It is valuable to compare the places in Scripture where Christ is the presiding judge, the authority. So go collect those as a homework assignment. Anyway, what is he doing? Why is he unseen Why do we hear him? We hear his word. We have his Bible. We hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. But why why this elimination of sight? He tells us to hear. Don't depend on what you see. Depend on what you hear. What's the difference? What is hearing? Hear his words. Why do we hear his words because of the scripture? Why do we have to wait to see him? As an aside, all of these booksellers who claim to have seen Jesus in heaven, should, you should immediately discount them as spurious. Immediately, it's all a hoax, a con. Because the descriptions of Christ never match what the Bible says he looks like. It never does. They've got the Gentile or the white guy with the blonde hair and the blue eyes and his hands together. That's what they got. Where did they get that? That's not Isaiah 6. That's not Daniel 7. 9 through 10. That's not Revelation 1, 12 through 18. That no one falls at his feet as if dead. Because that's Revelation 1, 17. It's always they're holding hands, they're singing songs, they're playing the banjo together. Okay, that last one I just threw in there. Christ is usually depicted by these as Hollywood depicts them. And, and that's the first of many clues, again, that it's a hoax. Hollywood gets nothing about Christ right ever. And they do that by design. Give your money to Paula White instead of Hollywood. At least, uh, at least she's just a greedy, lying idiot. Okay, that's enough of that, huh? Finally, everybody loves finally. Why does Christ then withdraw from man? Why does God withdraw from man? Drives man out, puts a barrier between us and man. Why does he do that? He's, what's his plan? You know what Desert Vile will say? Because he's unfair, unjust, and unloving. That's what he'll say. He lets us die. Why does he? Does he love us? Does he love all of us? Does he ask all of us to come to him to be saved? Who would reject him? Why would they reject him? How is it that they can reject him? Clearly the motive of Christ is what? He withdraws because why? 
He has to. In order for what? For us to be saved. In order for mercy. In order for love. That's why he does it. Is for us to discover why withdrawing from us is in fact part of his plan of salvation. Which is saving us, loving us, giving us mercy. Jesus separates the one real final thought. I hope it's final. Let me see if it is. Kind of final. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats in the 75-day interval at the end of the tribulation. The goats are placed. Repeat that. The goats are placed. Don't fear him who can destroy the body. Fear me, he says, who can place you into condemnation. The goats are placed into condemnation. The sheep are placed into the millennium. This is not the lake of fire and not the new Jerusalem. This is a millennial, pre-millennial event. 75-day event. But notice the placing. Some are placed into boxes or containers, if you will. By, the, by what means does Christ, who see all things and observes all things, how does he do this? What is his means of doing it? When Christ identifies someone as a goat, what is he saying about them? They're dead. They're lost. And he places them in the place of the dead. Or if you will, the graveyard. To use a common metaphor. He records them as dead. He actually observes them exactly as Schrodinger would have a scientist observe and make a recording as to whether or not they were alive or dead. That's a fundamental biblical principle. And they are surely dead and they're placed in the destination of the dead. Conversely, he identifies some as sheep and as alive and as saved and he records them as alive in his book of life. And they are surely forever living, placed into the dwelling of the living. Final thing, does the cat ever die in Schrodinger's? Does the hammer break the capsule and poison and kill the cat? Are you worried about the cat? Some are not worried. How, how non-empathetic. It's a lovely cat. We'll name it Snowball. Did Snowball die in Schrodinger's thought experiment? What is your definition of death? Let's rise and be dismissed.